This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath was just 12 years old when she set out to help change the law to allow women to fly fighter jets in combat. Now, and in 2018, she embarked on a new mission, to run for Congress. Similarly, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, actively served in the military deployed to Afghanistan after tours of duty at Harvard and as a Rhodes Scholar. Now, he's running for President of the United States. Despite these bright spots and of an increasingly new wave and new generation of post-9-11 veterans that are standing up, rolling up their sleeves, and looking to get involved in positions of public office and public trust, there has been a steady decline over recent decades in the number of lawmakers that have actually served in the military. All too often, debates across presidential stages and even down-ballot races tend to poke at the lack of acumen, insight, and frankly experience when it comes to conducting our foreign policy. And yet, at this moment in American history, our reputation to be able to guide America's path forward, make strategic alliances abroad, and invest in our military capacity, both digitally and on the field in the theater of war, couldn't be more important. Back in the early 1970s, nearly two-thirds of all members of Congress were veterans. Today, that number is actually down to just 18.8%. But as these shifts evolve in terms of the number of veterans that actually have faces within Congress or halls of public office, there's also been a bright spot in the shift of the types of people that are becoming first-time candidates. Everybody from teachers to neighbors to waiters to those with Muslim backgrounds to those with LGBTQ backgrounds to now that new wave that we discuss of post-9-11 veterans are all starting to jump into races or at a minimum raise their hand and clarify what it might mean to actually even try to run even before they make a decision. That's why organizations like New Politics have been founded to address exactly that. Noticing this decline in veteran representation and service alumni in Congress, both Emily Cherniak and Micah Scharf have been on a mission to ensure that we build a talent pipeline that intentionally overcomes this exclusive thought process of what it means to only be qualified enough or only have the right pedigree enough to run for office. All too often, New Politics points out significant barriers that prevent transformational leaders from successfully running for office undermine our well-being as a nation and, frankly, the level of thought, strategy, and leadership for America's potential. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Joining the podcast today, Emily Chernak is founder and executive director of New Politics and was named to Politico's 50 as one of the 50 thinkers, doers, and dreamers driving modern-day politics today. Also joining is Micah Scharf, the director of strategy and development, where she oversees the organization's ambitious growth plan following an election cycle in 2018, where service veterans were a national movement and ran some of the strongest races in the country on both sides of the aisle. Emily, Micah, thanks so much for joining American Enough. 
It's great to be here. I want to start with a little bit of the kind of founding story of New Politics, because for for any kind of um, layman viewer or casual observer of politics, um, this notion of a decline in veteran representation may not be front and center for them. Um, And and this notion of how people even find a pipeline into politics, figuring out whether running or office is even a good look for them or a fit for them, those concepts may be foreign to most individuals. So can you walk us through, Emily, a little bit about why you think building this pipeline, building this bench at this moment in time for this specific audience was an important vision for you in, in embarking on this endeavor? Sure. You know, I was not political at all. And you know, really, I, after college, did an AmeriCorps program called City Year, and I worked in Boston for several years in that program, working with, with young people in, in <clears throat> low-income communities, and really loved that work and had planned to do that forever. And then uh, Alan Casey, who co-founded City Year, who was my boss at the time, uh, decided to run for the special election in Massachusetts in 2009 when Ted Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, passed away. and you know, he kind of like he volunteered me to to work on the campaign. And even though I had no campaign experience, you know, he was like, "I I need people. I need you. Like, you'll you'll figure it out." And I, that experience for me, as a first time campaign staffer and the first time I'd ever been involved in any way in a political campaign, was really eye opening. I sort of talk about it like the Matrix, where you swallow the red pill, and you know, this entire world appeared before me that I never knew existed. And it just was, and, and through that campaign, I learned, you know, two really tough lessons about politics. And one is that there are significant barriers to entry that prevent transformative leaders from successfully running for office. You know, it's a really counterintuitive space. It's a closed ecosystem, and it's hard for someone to just figure it out. You know, Alan Casey was, you know, co-founded City Year. It was a model for AmeriCorps that President Clinton implemented. I mean, he had done big things, and yet could not, um, you know, could not navigate the campaign space. Um, and then the other thing I realized was that, the, you know, sort of political culture was really driving away the people that I thought it needed the most. And the people that I spent my professional life around were service people, people that had served in the military, they had served in the Peace Corps, or programs like AmeriCorps, like Teacher America, Public Allies, City Year. And they were really amazing leaders that I had grown to know and, and be around. And none of them were political. And so I thought about that a lot after the campaign, and I just thought, and I looked at a lot of data and saw that we were at the lowest number in history of veterans in Congress. You know, we used to have over 75 to 80 percent of Congress had served. And I just think that, you know, ethos of people with service backgrounds, you know, what they've learned in their service experience are really important lessons that are invaluable in political life. They know how to work with people different from them, from diverse backgrounds and different ideologies. They they know how to bring people together to solve problems. And they have boots on the ground experience where they that they have this incredible unique perspective that they can bring to policy making. So I just thought that, you know, those are the kind of people that we need to recruit and support and get involved in politics. So that was sort of how the idea was born. And and I I kind of want to double click on this idea of of what makes uh, a veteran or or a service member particularly unique about uh, in, in their in their general approach to to leading to coalition building and to executing on on really um, you know mission critical and and tough challenges that a country faces. Uh, 
it seems that in the American imagination, we've long celebrated veterans. We've long championed their well-being. We've wanted to make sure, even if we've we've come up short, we've wanted to make sure that um, we salute them when we see them on the streets. That we create organizations that invest in their families and, and you know loved ones that may remain at home, and that we want to invest in you know mental health and a whole range of services after after fighting. And yet, when it comes to politics, it seems that we really value um, anyone with a service background. Uh, you know, most recently, the the memorial of John McCain really spoke to uh, what it meant to be a fighter in Congress based off of what it meant to be a fighter in Vietnam and a wartime, um, you know, senatorial kind of legend and an icon for the country. Um, why do you think that we hold this special imag- uh, place for veterans in our mind and hearts as a nation, and yet there's been this seemingly dwindling number of folks running or being elected to office. I I recognize new politics is aiming to change that and built an incredible pipeline of candidates in 2018, which I want to get to in a moment. But is there something about the American psyche that's shifting that's resulting in that? Or do you think it's simply a matter of making sure that folks who want to run know that the barrier to running doesn't need to be as high as maybe it's perceived to be? You know, I think it's both. I think, um, you know, I think we do hold this sort of, we, we see veterans, we say, thank you for your service. Um, but I do think there's a lack of understanding because only 1% of the country at this point serves in the military. And so there is a lack of understanding about what it actually means to serve. And I think people don't, so I think what we've had to realize, and I remember when, you know, Seth Moulton, who was our first recruit, what we had to sort of unpack for people was, you know, he was a Marine, but a lot of people don't actually know what that means and what's the difference between being in the Army or the Marines or being leaving a platoon or not, or right? And so you have to sort of translate what the leadership skills that are learned in the service and why that relates to politics. So I do think people don't, you know, make that connection. I think we're starting to see the 9-11 generation of, of service veterans, you know, they are now sort of at the age where you know, they are thinking about their next steps. And, and so we, we've seen that uh, last cycle, you know, many of them ran, um, but there are still significant barriers. But I do think part of it is that they, you know, the, the general public doesn't actually understand while they respect it, what it really means and the skills that are learned in service. And and I think that that's a, a really good point in terms of shifting or, or reducing um, sorry, not reducing in a negative way, but translating rather the skills and service to what it actually means to run for office. Um, you know, governing might be one thing, but obviously campaigning can be a, a special art and science in its own right. Um, Micah, you oversee strategy and development for new politics um, and come from uh, campaigns in the past. And I'm curious, uh, it sounds like New Politics has pioneered um, kind of its own unique approach, not only in terms of building that pipeline of talent and encouraging recruitment among this class of of American veterans, but also through uh, leadership development programs. Um, I believe you all call it the ATC that explores how a veteran may feel about representing their own community and sort of the action items, if you will, that they need to tick through in order to run. Can you tell us a little bit more about how New Politics approaches the the concept and conversation of, hey, I might be interested, but I'm not sure what does it take to run? What does it take to win? Sure. Um, So I spent the last year and a half uh, in rural Ohio working on a new politics campaign. I was actually recruited out of management consulting by Emily and New Politics. Um, 
to pursue that role and learned very quickly a lot of the things that Emily just mentioned, that there is, um, that cam campaigns really can be lonely and there's not true support day to day. <clears throat> you see in the last six months of a campaign that a myriad of organizations, party structures and otherwise will come in, but the campaign really is won or lost or at least made competitive from the beginning and that's new politics ethos. Also, to your point around ATC or um, answering the call, that program starts one, two, three, four years before somebody actually considers, let alone actually run, runs for office. Um, and so that program, people can enter that program, learn um, about themselves and about how uh, their previous service could translate to continued service through um, political efforts. But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to step up and run. Something like 30% of our graduates of the program say that they will run at some point. Um, but out of the nearly 1,000 who have, that pipeline is growing, but it's not a people step up in, into ATC this year, they're going to run next year. Um, New Politics and Emily's vision, and honestly, um, the beauty of this is that it's investing in leaders long before uh, we actually see them again in the public spotlight. That's awesome. And, and I guess in terms of um, that actual uh, boot camp, if you will, or, or set of leadership development courses or conversations. Um, I am curious in terms of the, the kind of curriculum of thought that goes around a platform um, for a candidacy that happens to be a vet um, and what their ideas are. Because on the one hand, um, it, just because you serve in the military doesn't mean that talking about foreign affairs or geopolitics is necessarily the conversation that is, needs to be had in a, you know, a state senate race or a congressional race. Um, at the same time, though, uh, part of the, the the challenge that is very much on the minds of Americans at home and and American allies abroad is the the current times in which this administration happens to be conducting its foreign policy. Everything from you know calling out our own alliances as maybe not fit for the 21st century, even though the NATO alliance has been the most durable the nation the world has ever seen since you know a major war, um, all the way to kind of withdrawing troops from, from Afghanistan and the Middle East um, without consulting uh, fellow members of, of your administration or, or even the Pentagon, um, to even just calling out our allies via presidential tweet, um, including Barb's exchange with uh, uh, the UK's Prime Minister Theresa May just back in 2018. And so I'm wondering how much does a candidate that has this sort of both license, but also pressure to be the military mind, be the the kind of the foreign affairs mind. Uh, f how much does that need to translate into a conversation when they're a first time candidate for office versus you all kind of allowing them to to shape and flourish whatever tone and conversation they want to bring to bear, regardless of the policy issue? Yeah, it's a great question. <clears throat> you know, we find that our candidates that have served in the military you know, they don't, the voters don't expect them to be experts in foreign policy. And, but, but what, what the power they bring is their experience and that they've, they've been there, right? So they can sort of talk about it from a very personal frame around service and what they did and where they were and, and how to sort of, and, and they can tell stories that way and talk about the values around, you know, who we are as a country and a community. And so I think, yeah, that's the most powerful. So again, they don't they don't have to be sort of experts in you know the NATO policy, right? But but what it what people I think voters 
feel when they hear them talk about, you know, foreign policy is that they come from a place of I've walked the walk and I've been there and I've served. And so I think that we find that that to be resonate, resonating with voters. That, that That's very fair. And I, I guess the, the one uh, or I guess the multiple set of, of case studies that you would have, um, you know, to, to see how that plays out was and is the 2018 midterm cycle. Um, my understanding is that new politics supported I think 20 congressional and statewide candidates and and more than 30 down-ballot candidates this last election cycle. Um, What did you guys learn? We learned that candidates matter, um, despite running in districts that were seemingly impossible. You know, our our candidates did really well. Either they won or they overperformed. So candidates matter, right? People want real leaders in these roles. And, you know, we learned that that campaign staff matter. You know, Micah, who we recruited uh, to leave a life of, of comfort in D.C., and she amazingly, like, went out to Ohio and, and just lived there for almost two years and worked uh, 24-7. You know, it's one of the best finance directors in the country. And so if you invest in, in A-level talent, you get, like, A-player results. So I think we learned that, and I think that voters really – you know, they, they want elected leaders who work across the aisle to get things done. And I think that that resonates, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, I think people just want government to work for them. And so I think what we saw is that those those service leaders really inspired and connected and people really felt that when they were around them. Absolutely. And I think that that, that notion of, of being on the ground and recruiting is obviously um, the bread and butter of the operation at New Politics. And Micah, I'm curious how you reflect on this landscape of perhaps you could argue it dates back prior to 2016, but it really does seem that post-2016, after the presidential election, there there has been this flurry or this groundswell of different, um, for lack of better terms, kind of incubators of, of campaigns, of first-time candidates, anyone that, that is willing to get a clipboard to find out ways to like get up, lace up, and run um, or support candidates. You know, we've seen newer organizations sprout up like Swing Left, Run for Something, the Arena, certainly New Politics, even on the, the, the veteran side, I believe there's the Honor Super PAC that looks to invest in, um, in uh, veteran uh, candidacies. From your perspective, is it, do you see kind of these different organizations, even though um, your, yours is a sole organization that specifically focuses on veterans, how, how does that landscape um, impact your ability to recruit new candidates? Does it create kind of a net positive effect because the country is trying to enlist as many disparate minds as possible at this moment in history? Um, or or did you notice when you were on the ground in Ohio or in other regions trying to recruit folks, um, the mood sort of being one that was kind of bitter towards politics, given kind of the politics of division of our time? Yeah, I think that notion you mentioned about 2016 um, being a turning point, but I would add or agree with you that that was sort of a symptom of ongoing political challenges, not um, the cause. But I absolutely believe, and I'm um, a symptom of it myself, that people are engaged in a new way, particularly millennials. We saw voting rates up, of course, engagement was up, enthusiasm. Um, your podcast politics is at the center of our, all of our cultural conversations right now. Um, but new politics makes is that we are thinking not just about 
2019 in the state races, they're not just 2020, but we're thinking about who are our leaders going to be in 2022 and 2024. And right now we have a political system across the board, organizations, party structures, and otherwise um, that don't have the bandwidth um, nor the focus on a long-term investment, which results in um, you know, candidates selected for certain seats or certain elections and an investment on um, this flip or this session or this cycle, rather than really developing these leaders and making sure they're centered in their values that they've proven through previous service or otherwise um, to be ready to step up, run a strong campaign, and then lead uh, when they get to D.C. or the State House or City Council or what it may be. Uh, and this vision has been Emily's far before 2016, and it certainly, I think, you know, um, shot some energy into new politics and the number of veterans who stepped up in that moment. But a number of the new politics candidates have been in conversation about what serving their communities, again, would be, um, would look like down the road. Some of those timelines were expedited because of the 2016 election, but this is a phenomenon, and I think the strength of these campaigns is a reflection of the behind-the-scenes hard um, longitudinal work that New Politics and Emily has done over the last five years. Yeah, it, it is really incredible, I must say, just as a as an observer and as a someone that used to work um, for elected officials to see that not only the creation of new politics was stood up um, in just you know recent memory, but also the sheer tonnage of races that y'all were managing within the last couple of years, the last cycle. Um, I, I guess just from from a YouTube perspective, uh, or or from you, Emily, uh, your perspective of having built this and where you've seen it gone, um, it almost seems like there's a voracious appetite for this and, and you and the team are really on to something. Are, are there any lessons learned from kind of both the, the the challenges as well as the opportunities of the last cycle that you hope to start investing in how new politics structures it approach going into this next cycle? Yeah, I think, you know, our, our biggest takeaway was that our model like does matter and it is impactful and that you know, what we're doing is unique in this space. There aren't a lot of other organizations sort of focused on the leadership development piece, the the coaching, the incubation, the, you know, really sort of making sure that we break down all the barriers um, to candidates running and, and being viable. And so I think that's really important as a takeaway. I think, you know, for us, the lesson learned was about the talent around campaign staff. And that it was really hard to find enough talent to staff all these campaigns. And that, you know, you were only as good as your team, right? And so we are we piloted last summer and we're scaling this year a campaign academy because we just think, much like our approach to candidates, we always say that the lack of leadership in politics is not for a lack of leaders. Like we know where they are. We just need to recruit them into politics. We say the same thing applies to campaign staff. You know, there's amazing leaders out there. We just need to recruit them into the world of campaigns and get them to do that. So Micah was, you know, one example. We wish we had a Micah on every race, um, but we just sort of didn't get get in front of that fast enough. So that was sort of a, a takeaway, a lesson learned, and something we're really working on for this cycle. I think another um, thing that or lesson, I suppose, that came out of 2018, rather, whether it was intentional or sort of a function of um, the slate of amazing candidates was the need to build a community among these candidates, um, both 
we knew that that, that was needed uh, once they were elected to allow them to be successful um, leaders of Congress or city councilor, wherever they fell, but building a community amongst the candidates um, both strengthened campaigns or lessons learned across, but also um, gave these leaders the strength and energy and enthusiasm and support system that they needed uh, to go through what is, you know, you can know campaigns are a grueling process. And so we're working um, on a variety of initiatives to continue to build this community of servant leaders in the campaign space uh, to both support and elevate their campaigns and also elevate the conversation around the need for servant leaders in particularly in D.C. And, and Micah, given that it is a grueling process and it takes some time to to kind of create that roadmap to a potential run in an election day, um, how quickly for for the new politics team um, have you guys turned around and started focusing on on the next cycle or upcoming special elections? Is this something like right after uh, the November or midterm elections, y'all were able to to take a nap and have a glass of wine, or did you wake up the next day already with targets uh, and eyes set on? the 2020 elections in terms of candidate recruitment and candidate preparation? Yeah. Um, the great thing is elections are always happening. So we have mm-hmm. our a growing slate of 2019 candidates. And those, um, if they hadn't already started before last cycle, they're starting again. We also have the special election uh, that's been ongoing since November in, um, in North Carolina 9 with Dan McCready. And then to my Prior point, we are always looking forward. How can we uh, find and foster and inspire servant leaders across the board? If we only recruit cycle by cycle, we're not going to have the leaders ready um, to run that we want or that we need, honestly. So we have to be thinking forward thinking. And I think that's the, the, one of the biggest differentiators of, new, of the new politics model. So we are certainly pivoting. We've proven that the model of great candidates and um, early investment works. Uh, that's the primary ethos of new politics, but um, that's not an, a new idea. We're just going to continue to scale it and grow it and, and make it a reality across the country. That's awesome. And and I, I guess zooming out from the landscape of of your your mission both of your missions day in and day out to to build this new um pipeline of talent it is also kind of the backdrop of what it looks like to or what the shifting landscape of of congress looks like these days um you know many prognosticators point to the fact that the 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 nature of the times as well as the the successes of of certain races um you know maybe even the success of of the losing bernie sanders campaign in 2016 the successful defeat uh, and toppling of joe crowley in new york with uh ocasio cortez and a and a, a flurry of bills that have been introduced on the house side this session all kind of create uh, seemingly this tilt towards the left of the party and a lot of the presidential commentary for 2020 um, seems to be, you know, focused on how do you shift to the left? Um, you know, is tech under the scrutiny of the left? Um, how do we talk about the future of work and, and kind of pay equity um, in the workplace? Uh, how do we pursue Medicare for all, maybe even community or city college or, 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 or child care for all? Um, all of these topics 
seem bold, um, but but for some reason, all of the the conversations seem to be characterized as to whether you are quote progressive enough. Um, is this socialist or not? And I'm curious for for veterans. Um, you were mentioning earlier, Emily, that there is an approach in terms of how folks. Um, uh, start to crystallize their issues and their platform, and it doesn't have to focus on uh, just the fact that they they happen to serve in the military, and they could really be the intersection of what are the needs of that community, and what what voice and what conversation does that candidate want to bring to bear. Uh, but I am curious, as you do aim to recruit candidates, how much does this commentary around like this pendulum swing of ideology for the broader Democratic Party? play into your outlook, either in terms of recruitment or, frankly, when you talk to candidates um, that are veterans, uh, how, how much does it play in terms of into their calculation of whether they even want to run um, or, or, or lean into to exploring a run in the first place? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I mean, in politics, the pendulum always swings one way or the other. And so I think for us, you know, we were around before the 2016 presidential election, and we're going to be around a long time after. For us, it's about understanding those dynamics are happening, but really focusing on our recruiting efforts on leaders who are just exceptional and transformational and who will connect with voters because of their authenticity and because of who they are. And I think that we don't, you know, our, our leaders are across the spectrum. So, you know, Mike Gallagher, who we helped elect in 2016, is a conservative Republican in Wisconsin. And Seth Bolton, you know, who we helped elect in 2014, is a from the blue, you know, Massachusetts. And so, and the two of them are, are very different, but they, they're friends and they work together on a lot of, a, a lot of issues and they, and they get things done together because I think ultimately, and it's also why the, the Armed Services Committee um, in the House, which many of our candidates are now serving on, it is an incredibly bipartisan um, committee because I do think it's, it's a lot of veterans and they are really about country first. And so regardless of how where people land on sort of the ideological spectrum, what we know is that our leaders are really about where can we find places to work together and to get things done for the country. And I think you, you look at sort of the the era of LBJ and, the, you know, the sort of the, the war on poverty and the, and the civil rights bill, right? The big things they got done, you know, it was probably not a coincidence that a significant number of the of Congress was had service backgrounds and they were able to sort of come from different ideologies and put their, put their, put that aside to, to get things done for the country. And so we really want to make sure we have that ethos again in politics. That, that ethos of, of putting differences aside and, and actually prioritizing the, the country first is definitely an important one and, and strikes me as, as a citizen, um, having been out of government now, as perhaps the, the most important attitude in, in North Star that we could strive towards. It also is involving kind of a very unique constellation of people and backgrounds to get involved in the first place. And I think one of the more impressive things of new politics is not just targeting a, a particular class of folks to, as you all say, um, embark on their second tour of service or duty, um, but it's also pulling people um, into the political fold, into conversations that really matter uh, for the future of the country that maybe didn't necessarily assume that they could get involved. It, it, New Politics focuses very much on reducing the barrier to entry for what seems like a very exclusive high barrier role um, or, or opportunity. Uh, Micah, kind of just to drill 
drill down on your own personal story. Uh, you, you come from management consulting, um, and, and and you know, as as your colleague and, and boss Emily said, have been you know quickly regarded as one of the top fundraisers and and campaign operatives in the country. Although that story to come out of you know a Bain or McKinsey or man- management consulting, you don't see that all too often. And yet, right now, what's been fascinating and kind of the macro message about what new politics is rooted in and what the the last cycles have been rooted in is that it's kind of this final refrain that that uh, President Obama laid out in his farewell speech in Chicago in 2018, which was that. If you're bothered by something, if you're interested in something, if you if you feel like you want to nudge the needle on history in some capacity, it's not just about these jobs that seemingly have exclusive barriers to entry, but it's really about you know grabbing a clipboard, heading out there, and, and get out there. Um, given that you were someone that came from an unlikely background, when we think of what it means to be a campaign operative, what message would you have to others um, or listeners who maybe think about politics or increasingly noodling on it because of the the vitriol of our times, but really aren't sure how to lean in or get involved, or maybe are a little nervous because they don't feel that that they've got it in them because they've never worked in that space before. Absolutely. I'm asked that question. I've asked that question a lot. And um, I would say you don't have to move halfway across the country, um, back to your neck of the woods, whether it's Ohio or California, New Jersey. Um, You don't have to do anything rash, something call your local board of election and find out when the new election or the next election is likely it's, um, you know, in the next several months, find out who the candidates are. Uh, if one inspires you, knock on doors for them, host your friends to meet them, help raise money for them. Um, if someone doesn't inspire you, find people in your community who you think could make a change for the different or make a change for the better. Um, and if that's not enough, then find a way to step up and run yourself. I think, particularly the millennial generation, we're living in this political world where we have the tools, technology to be, to allow government to be more accessible, less accessible than I think in any part of our history because of this macro or this micro focus on um, really huge issues. At the end of the day, most of our solutions are found locally um, and those elections more than anything need people to step up and, and get involved in their own communities. And and Emily, I'm I'm curious, sort of as a closing thought here, um, having been able to to found new politics and, and to see its growth and trajectory, both from from last year, for the last few years, as well as where you see it moving forward. Um, how, how do you reflect on what you think this contribution um, that you and and this team are creating might? leave behind for what it means to be an American candidate, what it means to be a public candidate at this moment in history? Is that is that something that you kind of noodle over in terms of the impact that you're having, not just on campaigns, elections, and outcomes, but really what imprint you're leaving on, on the, the national conversation? Yeah. You know, I got into this, you know, as very much a, a reluctant founder. I really didn't want to start my own organization. And but I just I just felt this need to problem solve around this this issue of of bringing you know public service back into politics. And I think you know our our ultimate vision is that you know the first question a candidate will be asked is tell me about your service, right? What what did you do in your service to country? And there's lots of ways that people can do that. But I think 
you know, and the fact that that uh, elected leader puts the country first is the norm and not an anomaly, right? Like that's ultimately, I think, you know, if we can inspire and create that change, then then our work is accomplished. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for for your service, both of you, Emily and Micah, for everything that you've done for. Uh, not only American politics and, and changing the game in a future state, but also taking special care and attention of, of of making sure that those that actually have fought for our country are able to represent our country. I appreciate you both joining the pod. Thank you so much for having us. It's great. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.